things of it. I wouldn't pay a dinner for a carload. What ain't gold? Pyrites. Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Brian and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. And today I am joined by a uh, fellow University of Alberta graduate, Corey Fraze. Corey, how are you today? Doing really well, Brian. Good. Thanks. And yeah, absolutely. Happy to have you here. And we're recording this during the pandemic and hopefully during the last few months of the pandemic. How are you holding up? We're doing we're doing well. Uh, I think we're we're still quite a ways behind on the kind of the herd vaccination from, from you guys. So we're probably a few more months uh, away from that uh, the bright light. But uh, yeah, I think we're we're all hanging in and we see it coming. It's great. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, it's hard on it's hard on everybody, and I think we do have more vaccinations, but we've been pretty poor at doing the other social distancing and that that kind of thing. We. We're maybe much too free-spirited here. <laughs> well, Corey, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background, your education. Yeah, so um, thanks, Brian. Yeah, so I guess currently where I'm sitting, uh, I'm a principal geological engineer with uh, BGC Engineering. And, uh, you know, I took, I've taken a bit of a non-conventional uh, pathway. I'm you know, 27 years uh, out of an undergrad at, Geological Engineering at University of British Columbia, and um, you know, spent about eleven years in consulting. My 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 background and passion is always initiated with geohazards, landslide hazards. Um, so apply that to mining, pipelines, railways, transportation. Um, as long as it involved hazards, that's kind of where I've always been involved. Uh, as you, Brian, I, I did a master's degree uh, in the mid-90s, just missed you by, it sounds like, four months at the mm -hmm. uh, University of Alberta and the geosciences yeah. department there. Um, and, and yeah, came right out of that, uh, back into consulting where, you know, again, was fortunate to, to work in Alberta during the, the boom years and uh, a lot of really interesting work on linear infrastructure and, and mining uh, to support the development. Um, took a, took a, a 13 years away from consulting, I uh, got an offer I couldn't refuse from a client from the Alberta Geological Survey in uh, 2005 to uh, build a geohazards program for the province of Alberta and to um, and to run an early warning system for a large rock slide in, in, uh, in Alberta. And for those of you that don't know, the Alberta Geological Survey is part of the Alberta Energy Regulator. Uh, so ended up providing kind of being the geoscience arm of the provincial energy regulator in Alberta and my career morphed by the end of that to really supporting regulatory decision making regulatory design and, and really bringing my expertise in risk management that came from my geohazards background uh, to bear in mm -hmm. policy regulatory design and supporting decisions on, on projects and uh, in uh, 2018, the opportunity presented itself to, to move back into uh, into consulting. Um, 
Some of the first BGC was formed by one of my professors, Wayne Savney, in 1990. And uh, employee number three was a, a good friend of mine. And uh, oh. I came home, essentially, to BGC yeah. Engineering in, uh, in, uh, in 2019 and uh, really enjoying uh, my time there. Uh, a lot is focused on, on support on risk management, but also uh, I developed a passion about 20 years ago for satellite earth observation. And uh, a lot of what I do is uh, support uh, clients and colleagues in understanding how they use uh, satellites to support decision-making and mining and, and pipelines and geohazards. And uh, day to day, that means uh, we get to do things like work with NASA and the Canadian Space Agency. So uh, having a lot of fun. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And if you if you don't mind, how tell me? I, I've never heard a bad word about BGC. And for somebody um, to be in consulting for more than three decades and never hear a bad word, but I was wondering if if you could tell us how the company is structured. Is it employee owned or it's employee owned and non structured? Oh. <laughs> well, BGC. It's yeah. No, I I when I was in uh, government and people in the geohazards uh, realm in, internationally asked where was where was the place to go. I recommended BGC. Hmm. Um, you know, BGC really thrives on this one team culture. Um, you know, I worked for, for a, a, a publicly traded engineering company with cost centers in my previous life. Yeah. No, co no cost centers. We're one hmm. team. Uh, you have a project, uh, you bring in the right people that have the right expertise from across the company, you work together, you do projects, you, you know, ebb and flow, do pro but yeah, there's, there's absolutely no cost centers, which makes it really fun. Um, yeah. It's not without challenges, having, yeah. <laughs> having the lack of structure, you know, we are uh, a victim of our success. Um, you know, we, we, we've grown not by design, but by, you know, uh, demand uh, mm -hmm. for our services, yep. Uh, yep. mining side, linear infrastructure hazards. But yeah, it's a, it is a pretty dynamic place. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, really, I'm sure enjoying it here. Yeah. And, and are your offices only in North America or are you elsewhere? So we, we have offices, you know, predominantly in Canada, uh, one in Golden, uh, right where, where you are in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chile, Santiago, Chile, and in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. But we kind of go on the premise we we hire the right people, like the right yeah. fits with BGC, and yeah. you know we have yeah. world specialists that uh, our colleague Pete uh, Quinn is currently living in Belgium because his wife is the highest ranking member of the Canadian military with NATO. <laughs> so so we we just we kind of you know people are where they are. Um, yeah doesn't that's, that's really great. matter yeah. like but yeah, we do have yeah large office presences you know definitely like vancouver's are my or where mm -hmm. we were born is yep. our, our largest center and and i think we're learning a lot better how to work with remote employees because of the pandemic I, i'm not so sure that it's going to be beneficial to the mentoring of uh entry-level staff to be working remotely, but we're not going to be working remotely forever. It, it, it is a balance and it's something that I know BGC were very deliberate about. Um, you know, we had a whole bunch of new staff come in right when, you know, March 2020 um, hmm. that, have, that have never been in the office, right? <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, it's it, it yeah. is you know a lot of people are based on personal connections. Um, you know, uh, some of us are uh, able to you know manage effectively with this sort of connection uh, as long as in the personal life they have, <laughs> they have some sort of touch. But it's hard for, yeah. for a lot of people. But uh, but yeah, that is absolutely something we're very aware of is the mentoring and support and uh, on that side. Yeah, for sure. So. Corey, I really wanted to talk to you about risk assessments and mostly uh, for mining projects and in particular about tailings. So maybe you can just uh, start a, start telling me about risk assessments. So a lot of, as I said, my background coming out of geohazards uh, has been pretty beneficial um, to, yeah. to support that understanding. You know, when you're when you do landslide hazard work, um, you know, especially in North America, you follow a rigor, you follow a process, and and typically, you know, as an example, there's a there's an ISO 31000 process for risk management, and it walks you through the stages of of setting the context. You know, why are we doing this? What are the outcomes we're trying to achieve? And then it starts systematically walking through how you start collecting the relative information as it to the threats, the things that could go wrong and the consequences, and then starting to evaluate, you know, what you know and what you don't know. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, and then starting to lay that out, at least physically. And, and, and some people on the risk side, when you say risk, you get many different definitions for who you talk to. And many people don't understand what risk is. Yeah. Um, so a lot of, you know, that background with that structured approach to risk, the terminology, the consistency is you know, what I brought to me from geohazards. And, and now, you know, I've used it on the mining side at both the government, the policy and regulatory level, and also to support colleagues and, and clients. Um, I'm not the, you know, sometimes you say, well, you know, what do you know about risk? And they're like, well, I did a Monte Carlo simulation on the project. And you're like, okay. So you don't, so really, but really it's, 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 it's people aren't really understanding risk. And I find that quite common and people are, mm -hmm. don't want yeah. to admit that. But so what I often do, I, you know, I, I'm often kind of the facilitator that, you know, this says like, you know, first of all, and this, whether it's again, at a country level, at a national level, at a project level, at a structure level, you know, what are the outcomes? What are you trying to achieve? Right? Like, you know, whether, you know, if it's for a, if it's for a tailing structure, you know, what are the, you know, what are the jurisdictional or international best practices? You know, we're seeing, um, you know, like the, the international you know, tailing standards, we're seeing like the Mining Association Canada guidelines, they're starting to use this approach very consistently. But, you know, it's again, so from a, from a jurisdictional or an industry best practice, you know, what are those outcomes? What do you have to achieve? Right. And then, you know, walking through and saying, okay, so what are the, you know, what are those top events you want to avoid? You know, I want to avoid an overtopping failure of this. And then what are all the things that could contribute to that? Right. And then on the other side, and, and I, the way I'm talking right now, I'm trying to, you know, I, I, I in my head have a bow tie, you know, it's, and if you've ever used a bow tie tool in risk assessment, uh, many tools, but it's 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 a way to really get people with different backgrounds in a non-threatening manner to all pool their expertise and have a common understanding of of, of risk, 
and 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 what what the current state is and where they need to to spend more time and, and effort, mm-hmm. right? So you know when you talk you know you want to talk a tailing facility again. What are those? What's the design guidelines? You, you know the performance guidelines you need to meet to to ensure that uh, you're meeting the you know the, the the economic outcomes, the social outcomes, the environmental outcomes, the safety outcomes that are that are the reality for your yeah. for your product, yeah. right? Yep. And then that's and that's that's your consequences on the right side of the bow tie. So you know, and then on the left side, it's like, so what are all those things that could go wrong, mm. right? Yeah. And then yep. and then it's starting to sit in a facilitated manner with the group walking through and deconstructing all that. So there you go, the foundation. Oh, okay. Well, how do we how do we minimize the likelihood for something going wrong with the foundations? Oh, well, you do site investigation. Mm-hmm. Oh, you do this with preparation during construction. Oh, you do this, and you start to yeah. lay out. Well, here's all the things that we could do to minimize something bad from happening. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of that is people are saying, well, yeah, that's just what we do as tailings engineers. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 then you know, so during you know investigating project siting, uh, investigation, design, construction. There's lots of stuff you can do to make sure nothing goes wrong. Yeah. But other side of the bow tie, something does go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> how do you ensure, how do you minimize the severity of the consequences? Again, on the economic, the social, the public safety, the environmental side, you know, with, with uh, you know, with resp- warning and response, right? Um, so that's a lot of where I get involved uh, in these types of projects saying, you know, what are these series of barriers that you have or controls that you have on both sides of the bow tie? Um, are you comfortable that your your suite of controls is sufficient to keep your risk down? And and often you do this very qualitative saying, OK, like what's a what's the based on expert judgment? What is the likelihood of this occurring? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then again, same thing on the severity of consequence. Like, should this happen? Is it going to impact on, you know, a little little wetland, a, a city, a river, people? Like, you know, what is that? And starting to say, okay, where am I? Where are the things that I'm not comfortable with? Where are the things that I have under control, or the or the risks are pretty low, or oh. <laughs> We need to dig into this and therefore maybe we need to put more rigor into you know whether it be the preventative measures that let's prevent the like this from happening or the responsive barriers what do we do if it happens right so so that's a lot of where where i work um and again that then informs the detail the detail quantitative side of, of of risk and then and the design of of monitoring uh systems and approaches so I think one of the advantages of having a risk analysis like that is that all projects are different. And just because you think you're doing a good job and you think you're being thorough because this is how you've always done it, it's in a group of um, multidiscipline people with different expertises and backgrounds and seeing things from different angles and maybe seeing something that you didn't perceive coming up as a risk and it had do you know of any examples that you share with us where in a risk analysis like this some risk was identified that wasn't really very apparent so um 
Yeah, I've done a lot of different ones and maybe I'll I'll walk back to some of my regulatory life. Um, and I have I, I have at least one on on a on a project specific. Um, so often when you're looking at at controls or risk treatments, however you want to say it, or mitigation options, um, you know, you look at again what you can do beforehand or what you can do afterwards. And you know, we've we've definitely um, you know I've definitely worked on projects as, on the regulatory side where. Um, we sat down with the technical team and said, "Okay, what what do we what do we not want to happen?" Um, and for example, um, there was a report that was publicly published on 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 a um, on a fluid release from a subsurface uh, oil extraction site in, in uh, northern Alberta, where mm. oil uh, the, the pressure induced it was so great that oil from 400 meters below the surface went right up to the surface into a water body. Yeah, yeah. So as a regulator, we had to, we were challenged to say, okay, what, what are the controls we have in place? So what can the operator do on the front end to minimize that from happening again? And versus on the back end from a monitoring to be able to control, you know, control operations or respond in time, what can we do? Based on current technology and, and just being blind for that 400 meters of the surface, we said there's no way we can monitor and respond in time. Yeah. Therefore, all of the controls have to be completely front end and frankly, very prescriptive as a regulator, you know, mm -hmm. because we could, didn't have any, you know, any confidence that the operator could, could respond, right? Yeah. Um, same sort of thing I've had in a, um, um, you know, a realization with a with a tailings dam designer. I can get into names or locations or anything, but whereas we did a, a conceptual, what are what are the modes, the failure modes? Um, and I think you know sometimes people talk about this as failure modes and effects analysis. But you know, we said what are the failure modes? What are the things we're doing to minimize that from happening? And then on the response side, um, you know, and even on that preventative side. So you know, if you saw something happening and moving, what could you do to prevent it from, from, from this failure being realized? You know, could you build a tow berm? Could you do this? And the realization is we don't have the real estate to build a tow berm. Okay, well then you need to, that's a barrier you don't have. So you need to either focus more here or you need to really get your monitoring and response plan figured out if there's no way that you can, you know, if this starts moving then. So, or, or again, or, you know, what are the operational controls that you do have lowering pond levels? Yeah, you know, but it's it really gets people to think about all the levers they have and realizing that, man, this is a lever we don't have on this site or we should consider on this site. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, but as I said, you know, you can have different people in the room. You can have managers, you can have scientists, you can have engineers yeah. and, and yeah. most people will, you know, and, and everybody typically gets it <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You mentioned the, the FMEA, which I'm more familiar with. And one thing that I like about that is the chart that you come up with in the end that plots consequence and hazard for all of your different uh, potential scenarios. And it's color coded from green to red. And you want to 
it, it identifies things and says, okay, these things are in the red. How do we move them toward the orange? How do we move the orange toward the yellow? And the yellow toward the green? Yeah. And that's, that's a real exactly. visual. That's a real visual thing that you can, you can, you can put your arms around it. So, to you, what is what is the advantage of a bow tie type risk assessment? I think it's just more that it is, it's so much more of a visual tool. Whereas yeah. often the FMEAs, uh, you know, I see a lot of tables and spreadsheets. The spreadsheets. And you're, you're, and you're doing the same thing, Brian. Like, yeah. you're, you're, you're absolutely, you're getting to it a different way. And for a certain, you know, for an engineer, maybe a spreadsheet tool is a great tool, right? <laughs> but I think a lot of people, that wouldn't be accessible to a lot of people. So the bow tie is just, again, broadening the accessibility to the understanding of risk and, and, and to understand again, what are what are the various what is our existing current state? What are you know where qualitatively, well, semi-quantitatively, qualitatively, where things sit and where they need, where you need to focus efforts. Again, I've I've done that for regulatory design for you know induced seismicity around dams. <laughs> you know we yeah. use these tools. Yeah. We yeah. I've used them for salt cavern regulation. <laughs> you know, and that's mm -hmm. where where we we you know in some of these cases have highlighted major blind spots or gaps in process um you know, yeah. my old life as a regulator but yeah it isn't until people really see it all spelled out and, and it just not that visual you know format with yeah same thing the greens the yellows and the reds and then mm -hmm. ultimately the results plotted in a little matrix that has a whole bunch of dots in a corner you don't want that people yeah. start to understand it, yeah right? yeah yeah that's interesting and you mentioned uh assisting the space agencies. I'm curious how you make the leap from geohazards to the space agencies. Well, so in my, a lot of what I have focused on in my career is, is monitoring ground motion, right? Yeah. So of course yeah. that translates to mining and natural hazards, right? Right. And in 2003, I first saw a paper on group that was starting to use repeat pass radar satellites to, to look at change between satellite passes and, and, and quantify ground motion. And I became pretty passionate about that. And when I moved over to the Alberta Geological Survey, I had a lot more access to researchers and a team of groups and started working closely with the Canadian government researchers and actually built a relationship with the Canadian Space Agency. And they they brought me on as an internal reviewer because uh, I was in government for the Canadian mm. Space Agency yep. for a decade, where yep. pretty much a lot of the developments in, in satellite applied to mining, applied to natural. I, you know, I was on the inside reviewing and, and monitoring both developments. So, um, yeah, it's so again, it is all tied together. It, it's all you know, risk management, and, and it's understanding the tools that we have to understand the nature of, of, of hazards, uh, the evolution of those hazards. And uh, and yeah, and again, a lot of my career is spent on, on warning and response, the right side of the bow tie. And it's trying to understand yeah. uh, before we get to that right side, that top event, uh, how we can characterize and understand and also what technologies in general, not just space-based technologies we can use on the other side to provide warning um, and event detection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's great. Um, so I I assume there's no one size fits all risk analysis approach that you could adopt for somebody, but it does sound like I need to get 
more practiced on the bow tie type risk assessment? It's, you know, it again, um, it's a tool, right? Yeah. Like any tool, a tool has its application. Um, I find with multidisciplinary audiences, um, a bow tie, because it's so visual, uh, is very intuitive for people to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, again, there's, there's many different tools. If you go into like the, the ISO risk standard, they have a whole, uh, you know, document on different tools. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you talk about FEMEA, you talk about, oh my goodness, um, names escaping me, but I've, yeah, I've, I've had people that are, that are, that are risk practitioners lead me through exercises with tools that I've never <laughs> I've never yeah. seen it, and for, but uh, for very, very specific types of applications, um, you know, but, you know, for general, again, multidisciplinary communicating and, and, and having a common understanding of what mm -hmm. risk is and what mm -hmm. the risks are that you own and need to manage. Um, yeah, a bow tie is, is a, an exceptionally effective tool. Right? Yeah, yeah kind of not scale dependent either that you can scale up to mm -hmm. national level understanding versus down to the design of a you know a filter and a down yeah okay yeah yeah that's that's one of the things that's specifically mentioned in our new global industry standards on ta tailings management is the use of risk assessments and it it's funny i was reading somebody's a mining company's draft tailings management uh, standards and they they had the word risk like 40 times in the document but they never said risk assessment and I thought how do you know what your risk is unless you assess the risks what one of the things that is interesting if you go into and I'll just reference the ISO 31000 risk management system there's a it's comprised of kind of a high level principles a, a framework which is essentially the circular you know plan, do, check, feedback loop. But yeah. there's actually the process that I mentioned at the top where we talk about setting the context, identifying the, the, the risk, analyzing the risk, you know, that evaluating the risk, that if you actually look at those um, components and you compare it against the chapters of some of these international documents, mm -hmm. they've, essentially, they've essentially taken the risk process and, and built the chapters around that yeah. um you know and it's very deliberate um mm -hmm. you know and it's but and if you and if you if you work a lot with risk process you just you read these documents and say, oh yeah they're just building this around risk process so yeah um but yeah they they often don't get deliberately into um the nuts and bolts of, of, of what approach and how to do it because yeah there are many approaches and depending on who's in the room um I'm not going to tell you this tool is, is the best tool for you, but yeah, at a high level to get everybody on the same page. Yeah. Something like a bow tie is a pretty, pretty great starting point. Yeah. Well, I think the bottom line is people need to use risk assessments on a regular basis. And I'm, I'm familiar with updating them on a regular basis, like annually. So you've got kind of an operational risk analysis going on to make sure you're still on the same path that you intended to be on mm -hmm. yeah no absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah you need to these are you know work on risk you know this is 
you know, whatever you documented that it, that needs to be living. Um, yeah. You know, you uh, you need to understand how how things are changing over time. Um, when you talk about links to you know satellites and Earth observation, we are looking at how we take kind of static quantified risk uh, and then integrate what we're calling level of activity. And we're thinking more about landslides, but you know, as something starts moving or starts moving at a faster rate, how that adjusts your, your, your current level of risk. Anyways, mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting work that we're doing in the natural hazards uh, side, of, side of the ledger, but as we start getting more data you know you talk about the fourth industrial revolution with internet of things and satellite yeah, data and yeah, sensing yeah more and more in, in data analytics we're going to be able to track our risk you know bigger yeah. quotes you can't see that on yeah, this on yeah. the podcast <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at, at a more granular level that that, mm -hmm. that dynamically you're going to be tracking risk much more actively yeah yeah no that's that's really good and you used a term back there that I can't let you get away with with that explanation, the Internet of Things. And people use that term all the time. And I I had to look it up to see what the heck it means, because just by itself, it doesn't mean a whole bunch. But it really just means things in the past that really haven't been connected probably through the internet now are now being connected through the internet so things well are yeah if you've if you've worked in the world where you've hooked up a sensor to an automatic deck uh data acquisition system and had the data sent and accessed yeah you understand the internet of things but more and more you know cheaper um you know sensors um you know different things that are right are connected much more easily to the internet uh that we can feed in as kind of this near real time to, to build our new our ability to to detect, uh, you know, near real time with a with a wider array, you know, it's the technologies are, you know, the, the capability of the technologies is increasing exponentially. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I do a lot of work with data scientists, and, uh, and it's about preparing for this slug of data that we don't even know what it is, and we don't even know how we're going to use it. Mm -hmm. What's coming? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. In our houses, you know, we call them smart houses when we get our thermostat and our garage door and the alarm system and the lights and all that connected up through the internet. But it really is the internet of things, things that are hooked to the internet. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, Corey, this has been a lot of fun. One of the reasons I like to have this podcast is to get myself a little bit smarter each time and you've helped me there so i appreciate that yeah well uh, it's been fun as you know i'm not shy I, <laughs> I'm talking and, and yeah things like uh again when you ask me to talk about things that i'm passionate about that's uh, again real pleasure on my side yeah well, that's great and corey do you have any uh parting shots of wisdoms or, or key takeaways for the listeners or and me well, you know, one of the things that, that keeps me excited about what I'm doing is, uh, and this is one of the reasons I joined BGC, is just being, being surrounded by people that are way smarter than me yeah, <laughs> and have as yeah. much or more energy. And, yeah, you know, that's uh, that's what drives me. And, uh, you know, I, that's what I say to anybody. It's, uh, you know, 
if you, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Uh, you're in the wrong room, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I guess that would be my parting word. Yeah. I never want to be the smartest person in the room. Otherwise, yeah. so. Yeah, no, that's, that's terrific. And Corey, I appreciate your time today. And I look forward to future conversations and a time when we can all come back out of our basements and live the life we used to and see each other at conferences and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Brian, for the, the listeners don't know, you and I have not met face-to-face and yeah, I look forward to the yeah. actually having that opportunity here. Yeah, yeah. Well, Corey, I appreciate it. And I know you're a busy guy, so I'll let you get back to your day. But uh, thanks again, and we will definitely be in touch. Okay, right, take care. You too. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.